Enterprise Management 360, your main source for tech news, analysis, podcasts, and videos for the enterprise. Welcome to the EM360 podcast, where we have a weekly conversation with people who are impacting the enterprise tech landscape. I'm Thorsten Volk. I'm a managing research director at Enterprise Management Associates. And uh, today I'm joined by Rachel Dines, Head of Product and Development Marketing at Chronosphere. So we are going to talk about the state of cloud native observability. Rachel, cloud native observability. Uh, what is so special about it? How is it different from yeah, monitoring as we, as we know it? That's a great question, Torsten, and um, thanks for having me, by the way. It's great to be here. Um, so before I jump into that, I think we should level set on what is observability because that's not even something that there's a ton of consensus on. And then we can talk about like what is cloud-native observability. Okay. Uh, yeah. So observability, as, at least as I see it, and, and curious to have a discussion about this if you agree, it's basically it's solutions that are helping engineers remediate issues in their infrastructure and their applications uh, as quickly as possible, right? And the way that these tools do this is by first... Uh, helping, uh, making sure that the engineers know about the problem, ideally before the customer knows, then triage it so they can, you know, really dig into what service is impacted, how bad is it, how many customers are impacted. If this is like an on-call situation in the middle of the night, am I waking other people up? And then after remediating, doing root cause and really understanding the problem in a lot more depth. Um, that's at least how I think about, how we think about observability at a high level. Yeah. So instead of that old separation of monitoring, logging, tracing, we are thinking about objectives that we want to achieve for our business. And we want to enable engineers to proactively approach or I almost said attack uh, those <laughs> issues, but not for the issue's sake, right? Uh, we don't care about a red light just for, this, for, for the reason that it's red. We care about that red light if it prevents us from achieving a business metric. Absolutely. Yeah. Could not agree more. So that's, you know, I, I'm not a fan of thinking of metrics, logs, and traces. Those are the inputs, right? That's that's how you get to what you need. But it's all about orienting this around the outcome you want. Um, that's observability as a whole. And then if we scope it to cloud-native observability, these are solutions that are specifically built for cloud-native you know, speed, scale, ephemerality. And by the way, when I say cloud native, I'm using that as shorthand for containers, microservices, you know, de decentralized distributed architectures in both infrastructure and applications. And so cloud native observability are solutions that are, um, you know, incredibly, they have to be incredibly scalable and reliable, right, to meet that, that speed and scale and complexity in cloud native architectures without compromising on reliability or performance. They have to be really focused on helping engineers get through massive data growth and massive amounts of that metrics and logs and traces because cloud native environments produce a huge amount of telemetry data. And we need this data, right, to effectively operate and troubleshoot our systems. But, you know, if we can't harness it with our observability tool, like we're, we're going to be lost really fast. And then the third criteria I have is um, native compatibility with open source standards, because this is like a shift we're seeing significantly, you know, in the industry as where people are adopting open protocols, open standards like OpenTelemetry and Prometheus. We're starting to see um, that really become a, a 
something that is incredibly important for cloud native observability. Yeah, it is that seamless scale out capability that uh, architecture that allows you to today I'm just running my application in my own data center or under my desk even and <laughs> tomorrow I'm going to scale maybe one aspect right not even the whole thing but I can scale independently the different microservices depending on how they are used and how I want them to be used uh, and I don't have to worry about the observability platform missing what I'm doing and adding to my to my risk so that I have a lot of you know a risk that the corporation is not aware of because it doesn't know that I scaled out yes exactly and that's the the thing that we've been seeing consistently is as enterprises adopt cloud native when they try and take their previous generation observability tools with them, they 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 can't make the jump. And like you said, it's because they're missing data. They can't keep up with the speed. They're not compatible with the right standards. So that's why I we've been seeing more and more people carve out this cloud native observability as a, a, a specific subcategory. And Rachel, there is a big other aspect that I'm seeing uh, around cloud native observability, and that is bringing together developers and operators, you know, those traditionally antagonistic uh, fractions, if, if you will, where uh, typically when, when I look at the market landscape as, a, as an analyst, uh, I see uh, products that are good for what it are adopted and accepted by, uh, by operators. And then there's another group that are adopted and accepted by uh, developers, but uh, what I really need is both developers and operators working together to advance the organization, right? So uh, building one platform where they can really uh, work hand in hand. The developers uh, get easier instrumentation, they get, you know, that uh, they learn about the impact of the code and the the uh, the uh, the operating guys they uh, want to be able to monitor that stuff without overlooking anything and without having to change the code and necessarily understand all of the code. Yeah, you're spot on, and I think you know what what we were talking about really is is DevOps, right? And the DevOps movement's been around a long time, but as well, I mean, <laughs> relatively lo longer than cloud native, let's say, Theory, yeah. but, right? But, um, uh, you know, let's say DevOps been around, I don't know, ten, let's say 10 years, cloud native is really only maybe uh, five years old. Um, but as people have adopted cloud native DevOps, kind of, it changes its form and shape a little bit. And we start to see increasing pressure on engineering. And to your point, Torsten, um, a lot of the tools out there are not built with the mindset of engineers are operating and troubleshooting their own code, right? They're built more with the mindset of someone builds it and someone else operates it. And that's just not the reality in modern uh, enterprises today. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> that actually brings me to our next topic, and that is burnout. Um, there is a relationship between observability, cloud-native observability, and uh, burnout. And, and in fact, it can help prevent that burnout if, uh, if it's implemented right. 
Yeah, I completely agree with that. So actually, this brings me to saying I, I wanted to talk a little bit today about a recent survey that that we just fielded to uh, 500 engineers who are involved in observability. Um, and it was a mix of individual contributors and managers, but we found some really kind of depressing statistics that came out of this survey. Um, and I think a lot of this does point back to burnout. And I'll get back to your question. But what we found was the average engineer spends 10 hours a week on troubleshooting. So if they spend four, you know, imagine they're working 40 hours a week. We know that a lot of engineers work more than that. But if they're working 40 hours a week, that's 25% of their time they spent troubleshooting. So the the downstream impact of that is because they're spending so much time on this kind of repetitive and not rewarding work, um, they're not happy. They're burning out. And this survey found that they're directly because of this troubleshooting, one in five engineers wanted to quit their jobs. So, you know, you need any example of how observability when not done well um, and doesn't give the engineers the tool they need leads to burnout. That's it right there. So if you have the, you know, a great observability tool that can get engineers faster to the data that they need during incidents, help them get back to their lives, you can reduce that amount of time troubleshooting and make them a lot happier. And for the majority of organizations, that is a surprising new notion, right? They uh, they still have their separate budgets for logging and for uh, you know for, for 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 security for all of those uh, topics that belong to to observability, and uh, it often shows that they're not actually uh, implementing that collaborative approach, that holistic approach that. Uh, is focused at, at the business outcome and that uh, makes the developer's life easier to deliver features uh, to customers, you know, to build better products. Uh, companies have often not internalized that. No, they they haven't. And I mean, even with things as simple as like alerting, like you think that that's like, that's the tip of the spear, right? For like to get an actionable alert and, we found in this survey that 59% of en- engineers said that half their incident alerts were not actually helpful. So <laughs> like, yeah, so like, let's just go, go back to basics here. Um, and, and like, let's get some of this stuff more tuned to how engineers, modern cloud native engineers need and want to work. I think that'll go a long way. Yeah, yeah. And really not caring about infrastructure or networking for the infrastructure or networking sake, but uh, caring about uh, those uh, components for, for the sake of our business and how our application will perform for our customers. I think uh, that is the key. And that also leads me to to my next topic and question. Uh, how can cloud-native observability lead to a better customer attention? How can it make customers more happy? Well, I think we all know that Customer expectations are incredibly high. They've been high for a long time. Um, one trend we've been seeing more recently is that not only are expectations high, but consequences are high in that customers are more likely to leave after having a bad experience with a product, you know, whether it's a B2B or a B2C. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of challenges with customer retention these days. And what we found, once again, coming back to that survey, we found that 99% of companies were missing their mean time to re- uh, repair targets. So we we asked, like, and the way that we asked this was, we said, like, how long on average does it usually take your company to repair an issue? 
And then we said, what's your target mean time to repair an issue? And only 1% of the 500 respondents uh, answered with that they had met or exceeded their mean time to repair goal. So coming back to a customer experience, like if I'm, you know, trying to access a service or I'm trying to, um, you know, buy something, whether I'm a consumer or whether I'm trying to access a B2B service and it's down for hours and hours at a time, which the actual MTTR from the survey that we found was 7.8 hours. This is really, uh, this is obviously going to be customer impacting. Right. Yes. And uh, the interesting, the interesting thing is, you still have these uh, these 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 false goals. I you know, for for lack of better words, you still have that lack of prioritization that uh, we are seeing, where people are just trying to get those uh, yellow and red lights off their dashboards without really knowing the, the business impact and with also even knowing what is the priority? What is the order that we should fix those things in if it's multiple competing priorities? They cannot map it all the way through if a LUN fails in a, in a server. Okay, it's an old example. You know, say if, if my S3 bucket uh, uh, fails or you know somebody deletes something in my S3 bucket and my, my app doesn't work properly, uh, uh, customers can often not... Uh, see the interview, uh, the impact on their customers. Sorry, I mean uh, uh, observability customers. I mean organizations in general. They they often cannot prioritize based on that business impact, and and that's what's holding them back, and that's what causes those long mean time to mean times to repair. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, speaking of the business impact, that's something that we've seen a lot of our customers actually trying to tie together their infrastructure observability, application observability, and business observability. So, um, you know, some of our customers, like one of, just for example, one of our customers, DoorDash, has uh, executive dashboards within Chronosphere that looks at, yeah, the, you know, basic, you know, infrastructure, what's going on in their contain in their Kubernetes environment. They have application metrics, you know, what's 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 the red metrics and their microservices. And then they also can see in the same dashboard, like, you know, how many orders are being placed, how many dashers are on the road, and and can tie all of this back to, wow, I, there's a problem in the infrastructure and I can see the impact in the business as well. And that's just so important in how fast-paced modern businesses need to operate. Yeah, and you can probably, if you're DoorDash, even find uh, trends uh, that that you are seeing in terms of uh, people ordering, uh, depending on uh, what you're offering. You know, blue green testing, or uh, you use feature flagging where you're adding something to to my personal account uh, that that others don't have, and see how I respond to it. And you can let that all flow back into your application code and uh, all the way down into your infrastructure, right? That can go get really nuanced and it can really turn business into a big data problem. Yep. I mean, it's just, it's a massive competitive advantage for them and companies like them that operate in this way. Like they, they you're absolutely right. So uh, Rachel, <laughs> when I attend uh, conferences, uh, industry conferences, I usually see dozens of uh, observability companies on the floor. It is one of the hottest topics today. And uh, you guys at Chronosphere, how do you set yourself apart from the rest of the pack? What, what is your angle that you're doing better than anybody else? 
Yeah, so, I'm glad you asked. Um, so, uh, so Chronosphere, it's a SaaS solution, and it's the only observability platform that puts customers back in control of cloud-native complexity and data explosion. So what we're doing is one of our biggest differentiators is this ability to have total control over the efficiency of data. So we talked a little bit earlier about uh, data growth in a, a cloud-native world. And coming back to that, I mean, when you make this change from um, a more traditional like monolith and VM-based environment to a cloud-native, you know, microservices and containerized environment, the amount of data that's produced is, is, is a lot on the metrics, logs, and traces side. It's it's kind of a, it also leads to a lot more complexity. It's a necessary evil of cloud-native, but it gets incredibly overwhelming. So with Chronosphere, we have this capability called the control plane, which is incredibly unique, and it can help cust- it gives customers the power to transform their observability data based on their need, their context, and their utility. It scales it into like a format that humans can actually understand, and then upside controls runaway costs. So the average uh, Chronosphere customer actually is able to transform their data and get a 48% reduction in their data set. So that's huge. Where does this uh, reduction come from? Is that infrastructure cost reduction? So it is, uh, it's the reduction in the amount of data that they're storing. And we don't, so we, customers send us all of their data. They transform it, and then they only pay us for the transformed persistent data that they keep at the end. So if they are able to reduce, you know, get uh, not store half of their data, that that's half their data they're not paying us for. So the way that they get there is it's not like filtering or dropping or anything like that. It's transforming and aggregating, right? It's performing um, mathematical computations and changing sampling and um, sample rates and basically letting them allocate resources to data that matters more, more resources, resources to data that matters more and less resources that data matters less. Your lab data is not as important as your, you know, critical production data, the, the observability telemetry that comes from that. So that, you know, it just makes sense that you can um, uh, make those decisions at a business level. And then that impacts the way your observability solution behaves. Yeah. And that takes the risk out of experimenting with data where uh, it's just very, uh, it's just costly, right? If you hook up uh, more and more data streams and you have to analyze everything and pay for all of it, then you're not experimenting. You're not trying to find those hidden correlations and those, uh, you know, those, those magic patterns in, in end user behavior that uh, transform your business or that at least can uh, uh, can significantly move your your bottom line, right? That's uh, uh, customers don't have to be afraid of of of, of just uh, turning every stone to uh, to be successful. Yeah, that's absolutely a big part of it. Um, and I think the other part is is very practical and tactical. I see as companies their SaaS observability. Uh, bills get out of control, and the only way that they can combat it is just removing the agent from systems, so they're flying blind, or they end up having one tool for their, you know, one more expensive, more, more, you know, better tool for their, for their important stuff, and then a cheaper uh, tool for their less important stuff, and then they just. It, they don't have that central visibility that they need. So people start to do really unnatural things to try and reduce their observability costs, which are high. And this just gives them the complete control to actually do this intelligently. Like they can control their observability costs in a way that actually aligns to their business needs. 
Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes uh, you were just mentioning high priority and lower priority um, data that is tele telemetry data that's coming in. But sometimes it's just a relationship between seemingly innocent streams of data that can have a high priority impact. I mean, a big impact on your business. And you can only find out about that if you really get the big picture and ingest it all. And then you make the decision based on um, yeah, based on data science, where, where you in, in the background figure out, oh, are there interesting correlations? You know, is there something that you that, that makes sense to explore further? This is this is really to a big degree a data science problem that you guys are solving on behalf of the customer, and uh, you know you are seeing oh, there's uh, large amounts of data. They just all say the same. You know, there's no information in that, so. I automatically downsample uh, that data because you know the higher resolution doesn't get me anything, but the downsampling can save me petabytes worth of data per year, and uh, that translates into hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars for observability. Yep, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. But we want the important thing is we want to collect all the data at the finest granularity customers want to send us. And after we've collected it, then we can analyze it and figure out what to do with it. So there's no sampling, right? There's not like when I talk about downsampling, it's after we've collected the data. We might collect it at a 15 second interval and then downsample it to 15 minutes, right? But it's it, we make those decisions post post uh, collection. So the other quick things I just wanted to call out, and because the control plane is so important, it's not the only thing. Other big differentiators for us are reliability and availability. We've got the highest contract SLA of any SaaS observability solution out there. We guarantee three nines of uptime. We've historically actually delivered four nines. This is far and away much more available and reliable than any other solution out there. The performance and scalability is uh, really unmatched. So that ability to very quickly get engineers to the data they need, even at large scale. We work with all different sizes of customers, um, but we've been proven up to 2 billion data points per second. And then in terms of uh, the last piece of that, I don't want to belittle it and we don't have enough time to dig into it today, but is is really that it's, it's usable for everyone, whether they're a casual user or an expert. And what we found with a lot of other observability tools out there is they tend to cater to one audience or the other. It's it's just for ninjas. It's just for the people that you know can uh, can go to a blank command line and know exactly what to type in, or it's just for beginners. And then the ninjas, you know, the experts don't want to use it. And we've been able to find this nice balance where it's really it's it's a democratized tool where whether or not you know exactly what you know trace you're looking for, you can get to what you need um, within the solution in a unified um, way with across metrics and traces. That's a very important aspect of using data for the good of the business that uh, really everybody can contribute and everybody has certain ideas of what could be the case, what could be reality and what could be fiction. And uh, most of us uh, in the past were never able to really dig into the data and get to the bottom of that, right? As a, as a developer, for example, I may never know the impact of my code uh, that my code has uh, for, for for a specific type of user on a certain device, you know, on a mobile device at a certain time of day, you know, you can get as specific as you want, but every different user role from a developer to a, to a cloud engineer, DevOps engineer, security guy, we all have our theories and uh, we can all 
dig into data and then get uh, more information, make more uh, informed choices and decisions. And next time, you know, bring down our MTTR even further or increase the number of transactions on the same amount of hardware because we found out that we, we created some overhead that... Uh, that we can easily eliminate with a couple of lines of code or by leaving out a couple of lines of code. So there's a there's a lot of things uh, that have a big business impact that we can that we can find if we bring everybody together in uh, in data science. Rachel, do you have anything else in terms of uh, in terms of uh, differentiation of of Chronosphere? We've talked about uh, the scale out character. Uh, that is supported by by cost, where you're really only charging for the data that is relevant to the customer. And we've talked about uh, the the resiliency, basically the reliability uh, of your uh, of your platform. Is there anything else? We hit the big ones. I mean, you know, don't get me started. I could talk about Chronosphere for hours. So um, I, I think we hit the major ones I wanted to cover. And um, if anyone ever wants to talk more about this with me, um, I definitely have lots more to say about it. Excellent. So thanks, Rachel, for the excellent uh, conversation. Um, it was specifically interesting to uh, to, to, to tie together burnout and observability. That's not something that's up Obvious, uh, at first glance to everybody, uh, but I think it's it's very relevant in those days of uh, remote work. And if our listeners want more information, then you guys can head over to chronosphere.io, and I'm sure you'll find all of the uh, observability goodness that we discussed uh, in a lot of uh, documentation and interesting charts and. Um, and uh, introduction videos and all of those good things. So we'll be back next week with another episode in our podcast series. And until then, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on all the major platforms and follow the conversation on social media at EM360Tech on Twitter and on LinkedIn as well. And for more more daily content, head over to EM360Tech.com. 